welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club on Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. That hallelujah chorus sung for you by the London Philharmonic Orchestra and directed by David Perry is for you and for me for making it through this whirlwind of a book. If you are listening to this, I assume that you have stuck with me through all nine chapters and nine weeks of Orthodoxy. And I want to give you and me a huge pat on the back for making it through this crazy and interesting and difficult book. I laughed about it. I love that in the final pages of this chapter, uh, Chesterton himself calls it the close of this chaotic volume. And it is something of a chaotic volume, but we have made it through together. We have thought about difficult and humorous and important things. And I have learned so much from all of you as you've contributed your thoughts on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I just want to thank you for sticking with me throughout this summer. I have so enjoyed it and I hope that you have as well. So we are entering into our very final chapter. But before we get into that, I wanted to kind of update you on a few things and tell you what will come after we're done with the book club. So after we're done with the book club, I'll have a bit of a break before we start my new season in the autumn. My plan is to premiere the new season on starting September 9th, and it'll be on Mondays after that. I am already so excited for this season. I think that having the summer and doing the book club has kind of given me the freedom, um, as well as having many trains with long times to think on them, has given me the freedom to kind of brainstorm a new season and... Um, I feel like I've come up with a season that is a great combination of two things. One is that I just went through and I wrote down a lot of the art and the pieces and the books and the music that are the most precious to me. And I thought, what are those things that I want to talk about, to share with you all? So you have that kind of in your arsenal of artistic um, whatever. And then on the other hand, I thought about what are the things that I really care about talking about? What are the topics I want to wrestle with? And what is shaping up in this season is a great combination, I think, of both of those. And so I've been excited to share that with you. And I also have been really excited about the guests that I'll have on. So next season, we'll alternate between the themed episodes, where I'll look at one thing through three works of art, something visual, something literary, and something musical. And then the other weeks, I will interview um, one person on a subject that they're an expert on. So just like last um, year, we had Boredom with Rebecca Lamb, which I continue to have people tell me how much they loved, um, or The Seven Heavens with Michael Ward. I've, con- I've kind of been snooping around and talking to friends and getting people who are an expert on something, and I'll explore one topic with them. And I already have some really fun ones lined up. I already have some really fun ones recorded. So that will be a blast. I also am looking forward to using Joel more as my music advisor. Joel, of course, is my brother and now, again, my roommate. And he studied at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. He's a film composer and a, an orchestra. He does a lot of compositions. You should check out his 
music on joelclarkson.com because it's great for study music. We also do music together. Um, but he is kind of my music expert, and so I'm excited to bring him on to the show more often in the music sections to kind of give a little more info on that. So all that to say, I'm really excited about um, the next season, which will hopefully start either September 9th or September 16th. TBD, probably September 9th. Um, I'm getting back to Scotland next week. Um, so give me a week of jet lag and then I'll let you know for sure. But that sh it should be September 9th. And in between there, at some point, and this kind of combines two, um, two announcements, this week we have our final concert and event in Colorado Springs on August 14th at 7 p.m. at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. That will be an evening where we will explore the question of why beauty matters in a broken world and how to kind of cultivate lives of a stubborn hope in a world that is exhausted and cynical. And we will be doing, this event will be small talks where I'll talk about that and then it'll be intertwined with the music that Joel and I have written together with our band The Two Benedictions. And then Joel will also do a live reading of a new book that he's publishing. And we just did these in North Carolina. I just have to say that was a blast. I was surprised. I, I was expecting it to be good, but it was so fun to get to see people in real life. Um, it's such a surreal thing oftentimes to speak into a microphone and not see faces. But being in North Carolina, we had a lot of people come to our event on Thursday night. And people came from Georgia, from South Carolina, from Virginia, from way up close to Asheville. We had so many people come and I was just so delighted to meet people in real life. And then also to meet the patrons, the people that have been keeping me going financially and kind of emotionally over this last year. It was such a delight to see them at the concert and the tea and we did a house concert. So that was amazing. We're doing our final one of that in Colorado. If you are in the area, I would so encourage you to come. I think it's going to be a wonderful event, and I'm so excited to meet um, several people that I already know are coming in real life. So I'd love for you to come to that. But the second part of that is that we will be recording that, and I will be releasing it on um, on the podcast as its own kind of live podcast. It'll probably be super long, like an hour and a half, uh, once we have all the audio for that. So keep your eyes, your eyes or your ears peeled for that. Um, and the final thing to say is that this week I am celebrating one year on on Patreon. And most of you know what that is, but this is basically just a patronage program where um, where people support me 10 or $2 a month, and that goes towards basically my tuition and living costs. Last year when I was kind of overwhelmed, I felt like I was doing three full-time things. I was doing this podcast, I was doing my PhD, and I was also working in various ways to support myself financially enough to be able to pay rent and pay. I, I have most of my tuition covered, but there's kind of a chunk at the beginning every year that I have to pay. And so I was just really, really kind of burnt out doing all of those things. Um, and I prayed about it and I thought, you know what, the things that I feel called to put my energy into or into are really the podcast, my PhD. And so I put out a call and said, if you're willing to support me, um, that mean the world to me. And you all, you all have gone above and beyond what I expected. I'm so thankful for all of you. So as I stand here at a year, I just want to say thank you to every person who has supported me on Patreon. Uh, it's really about two to three percent of you, but that has been what I needed to keep going. And you have been an answer to prayer and I'm thankful for you. So happy anniversary, everyone. And thanks for joining me in this journey. 
Alright, so those are all of my announcements. I hope I've sped through them as quickly as I can. And now we're going into our final conversation in the book club about orthodoxy. So we come finally in this chapter, Authority and the Adventurer, to the end of the journey of Chesterton telling us why he has come to believe what he has come to believe. Now, this is really, in some ways, I think, kind of the linchpin to the whole thing. And this is the point at which we remember that ultimately this is not exactly a piece of, of apologetic work. He's not exactly defending um, Christianity against its critics. He's more saying how he came to find Christianity compelling. And the, the question that he's kind of answering is the question of the agnostic to him. And he treats the agnostic like they're very, they're reasonable. They're asking a reasonable question, which he says, basically, I respect that you have seen all of these intuitions answered in Christianity. But does that necessarily mean that Christianity is true? Or does it simply mean that Christianity has answered a lot of good questions? And, and in which case, why would you take Christianity uh, rather than just taking what is good in Christianity and leaving the rest behind. And it's funny because I actually remember having a very similar conversation with a friend of mine a long time ago. Um, we bonded because we both loved having vigorous conversations about um, about Christianity and well, r really more about fundamental things. Um, I obviously am a Christian and she was not. Uh, and there were several groups, there were several of us kind of in this group and we would have these vigorous and merry debates. And I remember that um, one day she basically said to me, I, I get why you find all these things compelling, but why wouldn't you, ra why do you have to connect yourself to tradition? Why wouldn't you rather just take what you like and throw out the rest? And she said, I would, I kind of wish that I could just have a philosopher's church. And I was like, what would that be? And she said, I just want to have a church where I get together with my friends every week and we talk about what's true in the world and what's best to do. And that would be my, that would be my church. That would just be a pursuit of truth together. Why do you need to connect yourself to tradition? And why would you see this whole tradition as being overwhelmingly true? And so that's pretty much the question that is put to Chesterton. And, um, and it's a good question for us, I think, because we can find there are many things that are satisfied in Christianity. Um, but that doesn't necessarily prove that it's true. And I think what Chesterton goes on to show is that it's really not about proving that Christianity is true. I love the part where he talks about when he says, why do I believe that Christianity is true? And he says the same reason that the agnostic is, isn't true that it's true, which is that there's a bunch of compelling reasons to make me believe it. Um, but the reality, the reality is that none of us are true rationalists. None of us, and, and the world isn't rationalist enough, which is what we've proved through this whole book, um, that we can go through and find a definitive answer for whether or not God exists. What persuades us to believe is this kind of mysterious culmination of things. And it reminds me of, I think I might have already talked about this in previous episodes, but there's this phrase that Cardinal John Henry Newman uses where he talks about the illative sense and he talks about how belief uh, is something that kind of, it's like a force that builds once we begin to accumulate things and it pushes us towards believing what is true. And that's not usually one argument that tips us over. It's the sense of a building to a big enough of a case that we find it compelling enough to believe. And, and this, again, is less about a logical argument for why Christianity is true or not. 
and more saying that we kind of come to believe things based on this intuitive accumulation of when the evidence is big enough to push us over the edge. Um, but then, so so he's he's trying to just be realistic about that. But then he says, the things that, the reason I'm not an agnostic rather than a Christian is that all of the intuitions that people tend to tell me that push them in the illative sense against Christianity don't seem to be true to me. And I think when I'm looking at this chapter, ultimately Chesterton kind of gives three reasons for why he is a Christian rather than an agnostic. And the first is that many of the claims of Christianity are rational, or really, and I think a better way of putting this would be that to believe that because it appears that Christianity is true, that it probably is true. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. The second is that he makes the point that Christianity really isn't just about um, doctrines that we hold to be true about the world, but rather about the living and active tradition of the church, of Christ mediating his presence in the world through the sacraments and the body of Christ in the world, in the church, that this is a living force that we encounter that's about our lived experience and not just about our intellect. And then finally, that, and I think perhaps this is the most compelling thing to Chesterton, is that in Christianity, he sees this claim that he doesn't find anywhere else that joy is the fundamental kernel of reality and not sorrow, and that we find this proven true in Christ and his resurrection. So with those three things, let's go ahead and explore them together. The first thing he claims uh, is basically that the claims of Christianity are are rational. Um, and so he goes through these various, I won't, I won't go too, too much into this, but he goes through these various kind of contemporary objections to the faith, um, which he lists, I'm looking at my, my pages that I printed out. So he lists them uh, as kind of a, a trifecta of reasons people might, might not believe. The first is that men are much more like beasts, so ultimately materialists, that we don't really have a soul, much more like a beast. Um, the second is that um, that religion rose out of ignorance and fear. And the third is that priests have blighted societies with bitterness and gloom. And he goes through and basically shows why why these are kind of on a common sense scale, just not necessarily true. That these are things that could be very easily argued against. And this isn't really him mounting a case. He's more just saying these are not damning um, arguments against Christianity because they can very easily be rebutted or at least pushed up against. Um, but I think that ultimately kind of the argument of this section is that if it appears that Christianity gives a compelling explanation of humankind, a perhaps more compelling explanation than you find anywhere else, then it is reasonable to assume that it's true. And again, this goes back to the conversation I had with my friend. So this same friend um, said to me once that we we talked about the difference of um, of making sense and sense-making, like we talked about at the very beginning of these podcasts, right? So the sense that, yes, there are arguments we can make for Christianity being true, but the thing that I find most compelling, and that Chesterton did as well, is that Christianity takes all of these intuitions we find about uh, about humanity, about what it is to live in a fallen world, about death, about um, about there being a life beyond mere material, but also a life and an importance of the material world, takes all of these things and it makes sense of them for us. And um, it tells us that it makes sense that we have a sense of what is right and wrong um, because we're made in the image of God. But it also makes sense that we have a hard time doing it because we are fallen. And it makes sense of these various things about reality. And what my friend would say to me, and I was 
thought this was very interesting, was she would say, I like your view of the world better. She said, yours is more compelling. It's more explanatory. But I believe that your view of the world arose, and this is kind of combining two of the objections, because I think the argument went that because we evolution needed us to survive and so we somehow created these myths that were um, helpful explanations that made us kind to each other, etc., etc. So basically what she's saying is that this is a powerful illusion which helps us to survive on Earth longer. And the thing that I thought was funny about this is I thought, well, that could certainly be true. That might be the case. But to me, it seems much more reasonable to assume that if an explanation seems simple, uh, if it seems compelling to say that Christianity explains a lot of our intuitions about the world, therefore it might be true, that seems like a much simpler and in many ways a much more rational um, approach to the world. And this is ultimately, I think, what, what Chesterton is kind of saying in this, which is he's saying that if it appears that Christianity gives this complex and compelling case for why the world is the way it is, it makes much more sense to believe that then it might actually be true, uh, rather than kind of twisting ourselves into knots trying to explain how this arose from evolution or or from social understandings. And again, this is not a building a case irreparably for the Christian faith. This is not a dogmatic and therefore we can prove that it's true. But he's just saying it is not irrational to believe that if something provides a compelling explanation for why the world and humanity and morality is the way it is, it would make a lot of sense for us to then assume that it was true. So this is the first kind of explanation he gives. But then the second um, explanation he gives, and this is also one I think that has been really compelling to me in my life, is that um, that it's not merely uh, that these arguments are found compelling or true, but that living in the light and in the pungent living life of the church is a part of what he found compelling. And this is how he describes it. He says, I have another far more solid and central ground for submitting to it as faith, instead of merely picking up hints from it as a scheme. And that is this, that the Christian church in its practical relation to my soul is a living teacher and not a dead one. It not only certainly taught me yesterday, it will almost certainly teach me tomorrow. And then skipping ahead a bit, he says, Plato has told you a truth, but Plato is dead. Shakespeare has startled you with an image, but Shakespeare will not startle you with any more. But imagine what it would be to live with such men living now, to know that Plato might break out with an original lecture tomorrow, or that any moment Shakespeare might shatter everything with a single song. The man who lives in contact with what he believes to be a living church is a man always expecting to meet Plato and Shakespeare tomorrow at breakfast. He is always expecting to see some truth he has never seen before. And so what Chesterton is saying here is that accepting the teachings of Christianity is not accepting a list of things that are true that someone has said in the past. It's also a matter of entering into a living, breathing something in history, and that something is the church. And the way that Christians have talked about this um, for most of Christian history is as the church as mother. And I love this part where he talks about how, um, how every child is raised under a mother. Um, and he says, every man is womanized merely by being born. They talk of masculine women, but every man is a feminized man. And if ever men walk to Westminster in protest against this female privilege, I shall not join the procession. Um, 
Chesterton, this is just a, an off, off note, but I love how much Chesterton loves and respects, truly respects women. His wife was um, kind of a mighty woman who, who really kept him going his whole life and took care of him. There's this great anecdote about him, as you can imagine, being kind of a harebrained person. And he once sent her a telegraph, um, telegram from a train station, and he said, Francis, I'm at Paddington Station. Stop. Where ought I to be? And, um, but all this to say, Chesterton had a kind of dependence and an honor for the women in his life and dedicated this book to his mother. All that to say, though, he is discussing in this part, um, the idea of, of the church being a living entity that teaches us every day. And I think he doesn't talk about this, but at the heart of this argument is the idea that the church is not just a gathering of people who agree about various truths. A church is the gathering of people who agree that something has happened objectively, which is the resurrection of Christ, um, that something continues to happen in the sacraments, that baptism and the Eucharist or communion, that God meets us again and again in worship, giving himself to us in his body and blood through communion. Um, and that, that this is something that we're both worshiping something that has happened and something that continues to happen. And that as you live in the reality of the church, you'll become more and more convinced of, of its reality, that it's not merely a gathering of people who believe the same things, but a gathering of people who believe that something definitive has happened, that Christ has risen from the dead and conquered death and will eventually return in judgment. And also that he continues to meet us every single week in a real and tangible way in the sacraments, in our worship and in our life as the church together. And this reminds me uh, actually of a passage from the brothers Karamazov or Karamazov or Karamazov. I'm not hundred percent sure how to pronounce that. Um, but I've been listening to it. Come to think of it. I think the audiobook reader says Karamazov. I think he says Karam <laughs> Karamazov. Anyway, um, I've been listening to it uh, on an audiobook, and there's this wonderful passage. It's really been moving to me. And there's this wonderful passage, there's this priest called Father Zosima, who's nearing the end of his life, and he is kind of a great spiritual teacher. And there's this passage where he goes out to meet all these people who come to him for advice and for prayer and for healing. And one woman comes to him and she, she confesses this anxiety in her heart um, that she can't make herself believe. And she says, if you would only give me a proof that Christianity was true, I could have my faith back. And Father Zosima, being both wise and honest, says to her, I'm sorry, I wish I could give you comforting words, but I cannot prove to you um, that everything in Christianity is true. I cannot prove the faith to you. But my advice to you is to live with as much concrete intention to love as you can, to live into the life of faith and to loving people well. And the more you live into that reality, the more you will discover both the eternality of your soul and the gift of love in Christ Jesus. And I think that's really what Chesterton is saying in this section, is that part of what is compelling or convincing to him is that when he began to live under, under the auspices of his mother church, he experienced the reality of that ongoing life, of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Um, and rather than trying to prove it with his intellect, he entered into that reality and found the further he embraced it, the more he found Christianity to be true. And this also reminds me of some work I did on, on St. Bonaventure, whom I love dearly. 
And for Bonaventure, he says the fundamental thing is to love God. But so often we think about God. And he says to think about something is always to hold it at a distance. Kind of think about, um, think about if you have a romantic, if you have a wife or a husband, think about your husband or wife. If you were to consider them and speak about them, you kind of have to look at them from a distance. If you were to think about their face, you'd have to look at their face from a distance. But if you wanted to experience them in love or to kiss them, you would draw close where you were blinded to their, you know, their specificities, but you were experiencing them. And only in that can you truly experience the reality of your spouse when you draw close, when you kiss. Um, and he's saying it's not, it is good to think and to reason, to put things at a distance and to think about them. But if we're ever truly to love, we have to put ourselves away from the attitude of the skeptic who puts at a distance and analyzes. And rather, we have to be willing to draw close, um, to kiss and to experience. And I think that's what Chesterton is describing, is this drawing close uh, to the experience of living in the light of the church, of living in to uh, Christ offering himself in the sacraments. And that this is the second reason he finds the most compelling, is that living with Christendom as his mother, um, he found that this was that he, he, the reality of it grew within him and he found it to be true. And the final thing that Chesterton talks about, the final things he finds most compelling, is the idea that at the center of the universe is joy and not sorrow. And this is how he describes this section. Man is more himself, man is more manlike, where joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief is superficial. Melancholy should be an inter innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. So maybe you could say this is another one of his intuitions about the universe. But he kind of connects this to the classical world. And he talks about how um, while the pagans, which would just mean the classical Greeks and Romans, they took great delight in the small things of life. But on a cosmic scale, they saw themselves as living a tragedy. They thought that ultimately, while we could take great delight in the small and good things of life, ultimately we were controlled by capricious gods and destined for Hades. And I think in many ways you could flip that and say that the same is true of a... I'm not trying to say this to be down on it. I'm just trying to say it on a non-religious view of the world. We can take great delight in our relationships and our friendships and doing good work and taking care of others and taking care of the earth. We can take great delight in those small things, but ultimately we are subject to the capricious hands of chance and ultimately we are destined to die and for there to be no life after death. And in many ways he sees kind of these two views of the world as being similar. And, and what he says is that he has this fundamental feeling that that is not true. Um, that despite much evidence, he has this gut sense that at the heart of the world is not grief and pain and destruction, but a kind of verdant, ongoing life. And the place where he sees that is in Christ. The only reason we can believe that joy is at the heart of the universe 
is if we believe that something outlasts this life, if we're not ultimately all doomed to be fodder for the daffodils, as Robin Williams says in um, The Dead Poet Society. There's a wonderful essay by uh, Lewis where he talks about kind of the fear of living in an atomic age. And I feel like now it would be more appropriate to call this the fear of living maybe in a climate disaster age. It's the fear of everything being destroyed. But ultimately what he says is, is that that fear of, of everything being destroyed, whether it's by an atomic bomb or by warfare or, or by a climate disaster, is really just the fear of death or annihilation um, coming to our faces and, and making us reckon with the fact that we all have to be afraid of ultimately there being a death. And he says, basically, you know what, whether it's an atomic bomb or a climate disaster or uh, eventually the heat death of the universe, this material world is finite. And either there's a spiritual world beyond it or there is not. And the wild thing that Christians believe is that one day in history, a human, Jesus Christ, who is also God, lived on earth, that he died and he rose again. And rising again, he inaugurated a kingdom that would come, that would beyond, be beyond the dying world that we experience. And this is a promise of things to come, that ultimately the end is never the end for us. And that is the promise we have in Christ. And if we didn't have that promise, we could not believe that there was this joy thrumming at the heart of the universe. We could have great satisfaction in friendships and in life and in doing good work, but we could ultimately not believe that it had any meaning beyond this little life that I experienced, beyond this survival for one more generation. But Chesterton believed that it was this secret of joy, of a hope that would not be suppressed or undone by the evil and darkness of the world that Christianity held for him. And that, I think, is the thing that he clung onto and chose when he finally became a Christian. And so I want to end reading you this passage and thinking about the fact that at the heart of it, this belief in the joy and the hope that we intuitively feel as at the heart of the universe is found in and is vindicated through and is given to us as an assurance in the person of Christ. So let me end with this passage. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And as I close this chaotic volume, I open again the strange small book from which all Christianity came, and I am again haunted by a kind of confirmation. The tremendous figure which fills the gospel towers in this respect, as in every other, above all thinkers who ever thought themselves tall. His pathos was natural, almost casual, the Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far sight of his native city. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomists are always proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up to the mountain to pray. There was something he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing 
that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. Friends, this concludes Reading with Joy, Summer 2019. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch me for my new season on September 9th. Thanks for reading, and thanks for listening.